When Frank Looper woke up on January 31, 1975, he didn't know it would be the warmest January day in Greenville, South Carolina since 1911. 79 degrees, the kind of day that could make a man believe winter was finished. Frank Looper had made big plans for that warm Friday, having no idea snow would fall on his grave a week later. My husband and his deputy friend, Ken Pettis, had plans to go bird hunting out in the Capabella area. Frank Looper had scheduled to go with them, but at the last minute, he said that he was not able to go. Frida Belk's family had some land about 20 miles north of town. Her husband, John Belk, a volunteer undercover narcotics deputy, had planned a fun day for fellow undercover agent Ken Pettis and the head of the drug unit, Lieutenant Frank Looper. So John and Ken Pettis went out to the Motlow Creek section, and I got a call after a couple of hours looking for Ken, and they relayed that his partner had been shot. A hundred miles to the south, Julia McCauley, who had grown up as Julia Looper, the drug cop's aunt, answered her phone in Casey, South Carolina. You know, when I got the call, I almost dropped the phone, because, I mean, it was such a shock. My sister is the one that called me and told me that, and we were all just devastated. Naturally, you would be. There weren't many details in those first chaotic hours. It was a time before the internet and cell phones. Even the worst news took time to travel. Frida Belk stood in her Greenville home and struggled to find a way to get to her husband, the man who was supposed to be out for a guy's afternoon with his boss. I had two small children at the time, and it was probably 20 miles away. I was not able to drive out there and contact them. Back then, there were no phones, and I wondered how I could get in touch with them. So my aunt lived down the road, and I called her and asked her would she drive down to an area and start blowing her horn to get their attention. And she did. When she contacted them, she gave them the word to come back to Greenville as quickly as you can because Ken's partner had been shot. So they rushed about a mile away to my old home place and used the phone to call in, and that's when they found out they were just so devastated. The devastation spread wider than Frida Belk knew as she scrambled to understand the situation and comfort her grieving husband. Julia McCauley ran to the garden in Casey, South Carolina, to tell her husband someone had shot her brother and nephew. You know, my brother died right away, and Frank lived a, just a short day or two, and he passed on. I mean, it was just, just about more than we could take. Out in the country on the edge of town, Rufus Franklin Looper Sr. prepared to grieve unlike he ever had. He and his wife had named their son after his father and Rufus Franklin Looper Jr. had done the same with his son, the first grandson. Now, Rufus Sr. was about to bury two men who were supposed to carry on his name and legacy for another two generations. It was devastating for my daddy. He was just heartbroken. Heartbreak is something different than grief. It's harder to quantify. Therapists will tell you about grief and its five stages. Heartbreak is all of those stages and something more abstract that psychiatrists can't diagram. And sometimes, the worst of times, the final stage of heartbreak requires justice. To understand that brand of justice, you'll require the story of how Frank Looper and his father came to be murdered in the first place. And if you're looking for a story, this crime has more stories than you can count. Among the few people who know almost all of them 
is a guy named Andy Etheridge. I'll never forget, I was 19 years old. I was in the South Carolina room at the main library downtown, thumbing through this, this periodical file of murder clippings. You turn the page and you read narcotics officer shot in head. And that one caught me. And you, all you have to do is read about three or four paragraphs into that before you said this is a story. For reasons that will become clear later, Andy and I had been running parallel investigations for the better part of two decades. Two men living in the same town, looking at the same files, asking the same questions, never seeing each other's faces until last year. I asked Andy to give me the official story, the one the jury heard. If, if you were a resident of Greenville County and you woke up Saturday morning, February 1st of, of 1975, and you read those same headlines, immediately you're intrigued. Just as a common citizen, the way it is told from you from the very first article is Vera Looper is in her house, and she sees a black man enter her husband's garage. She goes and wakes up her son, Frank Looper. He tucks a... He goes a 357 into his waistband, covered it with his shirt tail, and out he goes. And he goes into the garage, and there's a time period there. Two shots ring out. Vera Looper runs down to the garage, you know, calling for her son or her husband. She discovers two bodies. After the shot, she sees a, a black male fleeing the scene. And that's what you know. That's what you're left with. If you stop the story right there, you'd likely never hear a word of disagreement from anyone. But from that moment forward, the stories diverge. There are eyewitness accounts from people who were verifiably outside the Looper garage that afternoon. There are accounts from people who say they were there. There's an account from a man who said he was there in 1975, and then three decades later said he lied. And then there are those stories that no one's ever told. The stories of what happened before the murders and after the conviction and all of those that happened in a confounding year in between. For now, Andy picks up the story after 10 months of investigation and very little news to report along the way. You don't see anything about it, and then you, you open up the page one day, and you see Charles Wakefield indicted. And at this time, you get a eyewitness. Didn't see the murder, but saw everything else that was necessary. She claims that she was on, at this site um, soliciting donations to the Salvation Army from Rufus Looper. Um, she left the garage and passes who she identifies as Charles Wakefield, entering the garage. And then as she continues walking, she hears two gunshots that she at the time says she thought was a car backfiring. And that's it. She keeps walking. And she walks for 10 months <laughs> because she doesn't not inject herself back into the story until October, September of 75. It's this story, one told by a kindly elderly lady after 10 months of silence, that ultimately lands a death penalty conviction. A host of new witnesses backed her up. Characters, jailhouse snitches, and a guy named Wyatt Earp Harper enters into the scene and he claims he's the the lookout man. They initially were going to rob a liquor store, changed their mind. All of a sudden, this kind of rusty, old-looking metal 
building becomes prime targets for a robbery. They change their mind. They look over the jewelry store down the street. They look over the grocery store down the street, the liquor stores, and they key in on this, this garage. I mean, is this a garage that, you know, advertises that they do massive amounts of service? There may be large amounts of cash on hand. What is it that, that brought them to this point? And no, it is a, it, it, it's a garage that looks almost like any garage that you would take your car to, uh, a quote, shade tree mechanic. You know, it has the look of man that can really work on a car, but they're not trying to start a, uh, an empire of any sorts. They're just kind of working on cars. That's how the official story goes. Lieutenant Frank Looper, a drug cop who slept late after working all night. Rufus Looper, a man working in his own garage, died during a common robbery. Literal victims of circumstance. Murdered just for being there. Well, I think it made us all realize that you can be here one day and gone tomorrow. And that's true today. Since that day in 1975, people in Greenville, South Carolina, have whispered about the possibility, a possibility that for some folks is a deeply held belief, that the cops had it wrong from the very beginning. Those whispers weren't and haven't yet been loud enough for anyone to hear over the voices of some of the most powerful men in Greenville. But now, 40 years later, some of the people who once whispered have found their voices. Larry Smith, a man who spent a lot of time listening back then, remembers just how dark the rumors were about what might have happened to the county's top drug cop inside Looper's garage. I'd been by that garage thousands of times. From the very start, all the talk was it was an inside job. He was rubbing some of the other officers wrong in the things that he was after, drug-wise. This is hearsay, but man, it was strong hearsay from multiple sources. It was like, like everybody knew it, but nothing was done about it or getting done. You hear that enough and, you know, who's gonna be the guy to stand up and holler because he's liable to be the next one that's laid flat on the ground on his back with a gunshot. Everybody knew it, but nothing got done. To suggest that a cop would bloody the thin blue line sounds like heresy, like something only Hollywood would buy. A conspiracy theory riding on the wave of the Kennedy assassination, a cover-up six months after Watergate forced President Richard Nixon to resign. It wasn't so hard to believe, really, because even the most respected law enforcement officials of then and now admit corruption among the cops might have been at its worst in the mid-1970s. Even if corrupt cops played no role in the murders, an unease began to surface about the case against a man named Charles Wakefield Jr. Lynn West worked in the jail. The night the police arrested Wakefield, West's job was to interview inmates and assess their need for a public defender. West ended up face-to-face -face with Wakefield. That was probably the first quote-unquote murder I had talked to. After their conversation, West walked down the cell block and one of South Carolina's most notorious criminals stopped him. What did he tell you when he stopped you? So the guy you just got talking to, Wakefield, said he didn't, he didn't kill Frank Looper, and just, he just looked at me and grinned. Behind that grin was a killer, and behind that killer was a network of robbers and thieves so prolific and successful, people would talk about them for generations to come. It might be easy to discount the criminals and the street talk, 
But the longest-serving sheriff in Greenville County never forgot the stories he heard. Johnny Mac Brown became sheriff shortly after Charles Wakefield's conviction, and through a twist of fate, is sheriff again today. You know, I don't remember enough about the investigation, Brad. I wasn't involved in it. I didn't know the facts, and so all I can tell you is what I think, yeah, what I've heard. But uh, there wasn't a lot of evidence uh, in my opinion, to, to convict Charles. And, of course, I wasn't a solicitor I wasn't an investigator, but the, the people thought that, that he was railroaded. And I don't know that to be true or not, but um, there wasn't a lot of evidence pointed to him. And, you know, the word on the street was that, uh, that, that they had the wrong person. Two of the victim's surviving family members didn't need to hear the word on the street. In the days after the murders, Julia and Adele McCauley remembered what Frank Looper told them himself just weeks before he died. Frank just, he said he was on to really something big, and I think it was something due to the inside of where he worked in his workplace. It sounded like he was about to bust somebody, and I don't know if it was a narcotics bust or it was just to blow their cover for whatever bad things they were doing, but he was aware of something terribly wrong that was getting ready to be made public. Just like everybody else you've heard here, the Macaulay's story and what made them believe it is a long one. But for now, they will say without reservation, they don't believe Charles Wakefield killed Frank and Rufus Looper. Before anyone ever called him a murderer, Charles Wakefield's family and friends called him Wacky Wakefield. If you ask, they'll say Wacky, like the Wacky Professor. The three men who built the double murder case against Wacky Wakefield didn't mind that nickname at all. One of them would become chief of police. One would rise to the upper echelon of the state law enforcement division. The third remains one of the most respected legal professionals in South Carolina. He'd be mentioned more than once as a good nominee for the United States Supreme Court. That man is William Walter Wilkins, but everybody just calls him Billy. Well, you want to talk about Wacky? To have an appreciation for just how respected Billy Wilkins is in South Carolina, you have to read his resume. Elected as the circuit solicitor in his early 30s, that's the chief prosecutor for two counties. The first judge, Ronald Reagan, appointed to a federal bench. Chief judge for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And now, at age 76, an attorney for a big-time law firm in the center of Greenville. Its building overlooks the city's centerpiece waterfall. When we sat down to talk about the corruption and crimes of the 1970s, we did so in a conference room that was called the Billy Wilkins Room. Wilkins knew before he sat down, the conversation would eventually lead to the Looper murders. I mean, I know there's all this undercurrent been going on a long time, and Wakefield kind of became a cause celebrity, I guess, uh, with some local lawyers as well as some lawyers from New York who I don't object to at all. And innocent people should not be convicted and they should not be in prison. And if a mistake is made, it should be corrected. Uh, I do not believe a mistake was made. And I know things that other people don't know. That conversation with Billy Wilkins lasted for nearly an hour and a half, both because he played a key role in Wakefield's conviction and because Wilkins knows more than anyone about the fight against organized crime in 1970s Greenville. He was its chief opponent. You'll hear lots more from Wilkins in later episodes. But if there was anything he wanted to make clear, it was this. 
No matter how much doubt people have tried to cast over the past four decades, Wilkins, a man many people would say is beyond reproach, still believes he got the right man. Within 24 hours of Lupus being murdered, word on the street is it's Wacky Wakefield. Charles Wakefield was like a lot of black men in West Greenville back then. He struggled to find a job. He struggled to support his family. And when faced with a double murder charge, he struggled to find people to defend him. Wakefield ended up on death row. And but for the U.S. Supreme Court taking issue with South Carolina's death penalty law, he wouldn't be alive to talk today. Charles Wakefield Jr. learned he was going to the electric chair on February 26, 1976. He was 22 years old and refused to admit any role in the murders. Barring a miraculous reprieve of some sort, his end had been determined. He would be leather-strapped into a wooden chair and shot so full of electricity that he would never again look on Greenville, South Carolina's Reedy River Falls or anything else. Barely any time passed between the day he heard his death sentence and the day he looked through the bars of his tiny cell at a little brick building where any claim of innocence would die with him. I would think about how, how they was going to kill me, and I would look out the windows. They had this little brick building, and the guys that served, we called them runarounds. And I remember sitting there looking at that building every day. I said, what is that building right there? And then they say, that's the death house. In the days, months, and decades to come, Wakefield would sit in a cell just like that and think about a ridiculously mundane day he remembers too well. On January 31st, when the temperature hit nearly 80 degrees, picking up some tax forms, visiting his aunt, returning a carpet cleaning machine. A painfully ordinary day that ended with a blitz of Greenville police arresting him in front of his three-year-old daughter. They knocked on the door to say, you Charles Wakefield? I said, yep. Barged in. It was a bunch of them. I don't even know how many it was. It was a bunch of them. And they were like, had the back of my pants, and they were like, you know, pushing me, shoving me, all that stuff. I said, man, let me put my clothes on. Can I put my clothes on? They said, no, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Her mom had a, then we'll forget it. Her mom had a light blue sweater, button-up sweater, that was over there. And I put her mom's sweater on. Wakefield thought about going to jail in his mother-in-law's sweater for months and months as he waited to die. And then he got a miracle in 1978 when a U.S. Supreme Court decision scuttled South Carolina's plans to execute a number of men. A judge resentenced Wakefield to life in the state's bloody prisons. The life sentence gave him a lot of time to think about crime and punishment, power and poverty. Wakefield came to believe what some people saw as justice might have been the perfect crime. But God decided that, no, there's not going to be anything perfect about what y'all did. I'm not the author of revenge. God is. If God decides that it's going to be a resolution to this. If God decides that somebody should pay for what has happened to me, then that's going to be God. That's not going to be me. It'll be some time before you hear about those decades Wakefield spent locked up. Today, 
You only need to know that over the years, Wakefield tasted freedom several times. Each time, those powerful voices that always drowned out the whispers of doubt forced Wakefield back to prison. This is one strange case. And then one day, a lawyer who hoped to make a documentary about Charles Wakefield came down from New York and started to work for Wakefield like nobody ever had. Here's a clip from his reporting. People want to forget about this case. The investigators want people to forget about this case because there's a big loose end, and that loose end is the fact that Charles Wakefield's still alive. Before too long, the parole board again agreed. It was time for Charles Wakefield to walk free. And for a long time, I believed that he just might have, if it hadn't been for me. You're watching WYFF, Greenville, Spartanburg, Asheville, Anderson. One of the first things I learned in journalism school, a reporter should almost never become part of the story. WYFF News 4's Brad Willis joins us live at the Palmetto Expo Center. There have been many days in the past two decades I've wished that I wasn't part of this one. Michael, we're told the city has spent much of the day negotiating with Bank of America. Back in 2001, I was a TV news reporter at WYFF, the NBC affiliate in Greenville, South Carolina. And here's the thing about being a TV news reporter. Unless you have a special gig, you're responsible for filling your nightly time on the air. In an ideal situation, you'll have a legitimate news story in your pocket every day. If you don't, you could end up reporting on a Honda Goldwing motorcycle convention. And the bikers love Greenville. On that particular day more than 17 years ago, I was in my late 20s and stuck working on a story no one would ever remember. That answer will likely come Monday night, guys. Brad Willis. Thank you, Brad. That's when I got a phone call that gave me my lead story for the night. Charles Wakefield Jr., a man convicted of killing a cop 25 years ago, had just been paroled. You know, I had called my stepmom and I told her, I said, Mama, I made parole, and I'm getting ready to come home. I was asking myself, when was the last time a convicted cop killer got parole? And of all places, South Carolina. Turns out, it had happened before to Charles Wakefield. In fact, Wakefield had been paroled before, but he never walked free. I didn't know that. Right then, I was trying to figure out which cop I could call. Understand, crime and courts were my beat. Many of the cops were my friends. And so were some of their widows and grieving parents. In the past two years, I'd reported on the deaths of three law enforcement officers. Two of those had been called murder. And there'd be more in the years to come. With that on my mind, I got to work. And before sundown, the retired chief of police was standing with me in his driveway, ranting against Wakefield and the injustice of it all. It's the last thing that I want to deal with. But, uh, you know, this really upsets me, and, I, and there's no reason for it, no call for it, and it's a miscarriage of justice, and, and I hope that, that somebody, somebody has to answer some tough questions on this case. Mike Bridges was that retired police chief, but on January 31st, 1975, he was a homicide detective with the Greenville Police Department. He was among those three men who put the case against Wakefield together. And he was mad as hell. This right here is a miscarriage of justice. And it's just beyond me, beyond me, how a man that kills two people in an armed robbery, one a law enforcement officer, and his father ruins all those lives, and they let him walk out. Bridges, the retired chief, and 2001 police chief Willie Johnson, one of the men who first arrested Wakefield in 1975, they decided to go on the offensive. This is me reporting about it a few weeks before my 28th birthday. Now Bridges and Chief Johnson are calling for a new hearing and an explanation before Wakefield gets out of prison. Not too many days later, the red-faced parole board told Charles Wakefield they'd messed up. 
despite the promise of freedom, he wasn't getting out of prison again. And me, at the time, I considered it a job well done. Completely unaware of all the years of shame that would follow, I sat down that night and wrote an essay about how damn proud I was of myself. A few days later, I'd write something else, complaining about having to work on Thanksgiving, not bothering to think at all about the fact Charles Wakefield was eating his holiday meal in prison. I don't remember exactly how much time passed before a man named Eric Gottlieb showed up in the newsroom. He was the attorney and filmmaker who had been working on Wakefield's behalf. He was, in the parlance of upstate South Carolina's law enforcement community, a New York lawyer. No murder weapon, fingerprints, or any forensic evidence was ever found. Gottlieb had a black leather jacket, a 750-page spiral-bound file, a simple request. He wanted me to know what he knew. He wanted me to read that big file. I went to my in-laws in Mississippi for Christmas. I spent the evenings reading Gottlieb's file, shocked at what I found inside. Quick warning, the next part of this story includes a racial slur that I've only included here to give you a sense of how Greenville, South Carolina was at the time. Back at the office, I started getting anonymous tips. And he said, man, he just said, I killed a cop. I didn't kill nobody. And then we started Those tips led to conversations with people who said they knew more than most. Here's one of those people talking about a day he spent in prison with a drug-addled contract killer and the credit that killer took for the Looper murders. Uh, we were sitting there, and he was geeked up on crank. You know, it would make your mouth run. And he was sitting there, and I just said they brought Wakefield in from CCI over here. And he just looked at me and said, hey, that nigger didn't kill that cop. I did. And I said, what? I didn't know how many times I'd hear that killer's name again over the next 17 years. I didn't know whether to believe that anonymous tipster. At that point, I had no idea who or what to believe. It wasn't just that I didn't know the facts of the case. I knew almost nothing about the case at all. What I did know was this. When I chased a blinking voicemail light all the way to the lead story of the newscast, I'd made a mistake. It was a mistake that started a ball rolling that cost Wakefield another eight years of his life. I was heartbroken. I thought that after, after all those years that it would finally be over. And I was just, I was devastated. It was a mistake I've been working to make right ever since. Digging four decades deep requires time, meeting people who scare you, countless freedom of information requests, and in some cases, a very large, very heavy book. Locked in a vault in the Greenville County Courthouse, there are a lot of those books, books that index all of the arrests and indictments going back decades. You can spend days going through these big books page by page, year by year. On one very warm Friday afternoon last spring, I turned a page and saw Charles Wakefield's name. And next to it, an almost absurdly mundane abbreviation of a notorious crime. Murder, etc. For every lead I followed to find the truth about the Looper murders, I'd turn a page and find five leads about the etc. The parts that nobody ever reported. The crimes people have forgotten or never knew about. The connections between the murders and the etc. 
All of it happened here, Greenville, South Carolina, a place that seems to have been on every top 10 list in the country for the last five years, a place where people still only whisper about a murdered cop, a young black man from Greenville's west side, and those legendary etc. stories in Greenville's hidden history. The etc. is where Andy Etheridge and I found each other. It, it's, it's interesting because, you know, to make light of the politics of the day and the blue lives matter versus black lives matter, here's an instance in 1975 where neither one of them mattered. And that's the tragedy in it. It doesn't matter who you voted for. If you can't see the tragedy in, in a, a story being told where neither one life mattered, that, that's, that's hard. But it's, it's something that I think the town's going to have to look on. And it's almost like, well, look what we've done. And even today, that's, look what we've done. Look how far we've come. Oh, yeah, but we don't talk about that nasty little episode back then. I mean, and that's, that's what it is. You are the stories that make you up. It's a town that's a, a whole bunch of different tales. And some are cool and some are rosy and some, some are ugly. And this is an attempt to tell it the right way. Part of telling it the right way is not telling it all at once. It's very rare a week passes when I don't find something that shocks me, someone who's found enough courage to talk to me, some connection that everyone seems to have missed along the way. Murder Etc. will be a weekly show. That will give me time to run down new leads from our subscribers. The answers are out there, sitting under dust in a basement, locked in a vault, in someone's memory. I'm sensitive to how perishable those answers are, how many times I've found the people who know those answers in last month's obituaries. I've been digging for years, and I'm constantly worried that we're almost out of time. I'm hoping someone I've not yet met, someone who's yet to find the voice and courage it takes to talk, someone who might be listening right now will come forward and tell me what everybody needs to know. You can't take street talk to court. You can't speak about rumors to the pardon board. But you can speak truth to power. This story will evolve over time with your help. And in the meantime, I have a story about the murder and the etc. that will make Greenville, South Carolina, America's favorite southeastern city, sound like the wild, wild west. In the weeks ahead, you will hear from Greenville's longtime mayor, a man who helped build this city into something new out of a place that was so dark and sometimes terrible that it once made a top 10 list for all the wrong reasons. In the 1970s, there was a best-selling book called The Book of List, and it was the top 10 this, the top 10 that. And do you know that Greenville and Charleston are on the list of worst cities in America. Pretty amazing, in 19, it was 1976. It's a whole new place. I mean, it's, it bears no resemblance to the way it was 25 years ago. You'll hear about a gang of bank robbers and drug thieves so prolific, they had one of the top sheriff's lieutenants in their pocket. Uh, Skelton, you know, when you stop and think about it, a man who is, who is in the law enforcement line, who decides, listen, I'm going to give you some information that's illegal, but uh, you, you give me some money in return. That's a, daring, that's a daring attitude to have. A crew so dangerous, it didn't think twice about murder for hire. Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in, has his ribs and pulls the trigger. Frank Walker's got a 22 shooting him in the back of the head because there's blood everywhere. 
you'll hear from an attorney who worked to free Charles Wakefield, the same man the attorney's own father sentenced to die. Charles always maintained his innocence and would write my father about this or that. The first 10 years I was a lawyer, I lived in New York. When Daddy got a letter from Charles, he got to where he'd send it to me in New York because he knew I liked reading them. I told him, I said, I'd really like to get him out of jail. We'll also be updating Murder Etc.'s website with every episode. If you want to see the people you're listening to, use the documents that I use to study the case on your own, and securely leave your own tips, visit MurderEtcPodcast.com. Just type in MurderETCPodcast.com. From there, you can stay in touch with our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. And if you're looking for a way to help right now, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, wherever you like to get your podcast. Your subscriptions and reviews will help tell this story to as many people as possible. Next time on Murder, Etc. It was just me, my sister, and uh, my brother. That's all, just the three of us. And I'm the only one left. Most people in Greenville remember Frank Looper for how he died. Next week, you'll hear from people who remember how he lived, the threat he posed to organized crime, and the courage he showed when he discovered organized crime was a threat to him, too. Because when I lived in the house, people would go, what's that? I said, it's a bullet hole. The first threats hit home on the next Murder, Etc.